0: Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of progress. This is the second episode of Dementia Decoded, a special five-part series presented by the Academy's Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative, with the generous support of the Dana Foundation. Episode 2, Plaques and Tangles As we heard in the first episode of this series, Recent polls have named Alzheimer's the disease Americans fear more than any other. And little wonder. As we also began to see, it's a condition that is in many ways as mysterious as it is devastating. We know what it does to someone's brain, and maybe more importantly to their mind, but for all intents and purposes, we don't really know why. This is the second episode of a five-part series that aims to combat that fear with the best tool that we have, knowledge. Because while there's still a lot we don't know about it, there's a lot we do know about Alzheimer's. And some very smart people all around the world are working every day to learn more and more. In this episode, we're going to dive deep into that mystery, look in detail at what we know and don't know about the fundamental physiology behind Alzheimer's disease, those plaques and tangles that Dr. Alzheimer discovered in the brain of a patient in 1901, and how we're working to expand that knowledge. Alzheimer's has three characteristic pathological signatures. Plaques of a protein called beta amyloid that build up between neurons, thick tangles inside the neurons of a different protein called tau, and the permanent death of those neurons. We also said that it's not conclusively known in what order these three things happen and what causes them. That's mostly true, but not entirely. There is a form of Alzheimer's for which the cause is definitely known. It's a very rare form, though, and it's not clear how much this mechanism carries over to the vast majority of Alzheimer's cases. I'm speaking here of what's called early-onset Alzheimer's, which has a very clear genetic cause, a mutation in one of three genes that are involved in the creation and processing of beta-amyloid. Here's Dr. Randall Bateman, Distinguished Professor of Neurology at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis.
1: In a rare form of the disease where there's mutations, those mutations are recognized to be the pathogenesis of the disease. It's the fact that they have a mutation in one of these three genes that are associated with processing amyloid beta uh, that causes their disease. And the specifics of how they do it is also better understood now that those mutations appear to either increase the amount or the, the stickiness, the length of the amyloid beta peptides that make it more likely to get stuck in the brain, to aggregate up, build up. And then those amyloid beta plaques appear to trigger other processes that leads to irritation and damage of the neurons, the thinking cells of the brain and include key pathologies like the tangle, which is made of this protein called tau in it, and that that pathology appears to be closely linked to cognitive decline.
0: And here's Dr. Richard Mayhew, co-director of the Center for Alzheimer's Research
2: at Columbia University. The mutations are completely penetrant. They're definitive. So if you have the mutation, you will get the disease. It never skips a generation either the mother or the father can transmit it to the subsequent generation, and that every child born to a parent with Alzheimer's disease would have a 50-50 chance of developing the disease. This
0: clear genetic pathway only applies, though, to early onset Alzheimer's, a very rare form of the disease that strikes people in their 40s or 50s rather than their 70s or 80s, and only accounts for a small number of the total cases of Alzheimer's in the United States perhaps 200,000 patients, as opposed to the 5 million who have other forms of the disease. This was an extremely promising breakthrough, though, and scientists began looking for similar genetic causes of late-onset Alzheimer's. And there has been some success. An increased risk of late-onset Alzheimer's has been linked to inheriting a particular variation, or allele, of a gene called apolipoprotein, specifically the E4 allele, known to its friends as ApoE4.
2: Every gene has two forms, uh, what we call alleles. One you get from your mother and one you get from your father. So if you get a 1,4 from either parent, then your risk was increased about two or threefold, assuming you live to about 80. Uh, if you got two copies, your risk could be as high as 10-fold, uh, assuming you live to about 80. So having E4 is probably the most common Uh, and robust genetic risk factor for getting the late onset form of Alzheimer's disease. It's the most robust
0: genetic risk factor we've discovered, but it clearly doesn't tell the whole story. Because it's just a risk factor. You can have APOE4 and not get Alzheimer's.
2: And a very big majority of people who have the disease don't have that allele. If you look within people with Alzheimer's disease. You know, 30 to 40 percent of them will have an E4 allele, but still, the majority don't have an E4 allele. They have. They could be 33 or 23 or some other configuration at the APOE locus, and not have a mutation. So, all of those early onset mutations maybe make one percent of Alzheimer's disease, and then maybe not even that much. And then the E4 maybe explains. A total of 20 to 30 percent of Alzheimer's disease. The rest of it's unexplained.
0: Many researchers around the world are working to find other genetic risk factors that will expand this understanding of the root causes of Alzheimer's. One that's currently under examination is a gene called TOMM40, TOM40, which sits right next to ApoE on the genome. Studies of this gene so far have been inconclusive. But Takeda Pharmaceuticals from Japan has teamed up with the American company Zinfandel to perform the largest study of TOM40 as a risk factor yet conducted. Here's Dr. Tetsuyuki Maruyama, Takeda's senior
3: vice president and general manager for research. I think APOE is very well established at this point uh, as a risk factor, though it took the field a little while to accept it. Um, And I have to be honest and say that right now TOM40 as a risk factor is still gaining acceptance. Uh, may I say? Um, The best way to test that is to do the clinical trial, which is what we're doing right now. Results of this work are several years off, though, and honestly
0: unlikely to provide us with a definitive answer to the question of what causes Alzheimer's disease in the majority of cases. And so what we have right now is a collection of puzzles nested one inside the other. We can see a conclusive one-to-one correlation between having particular mutations in genes that have to do with the processing of beta-amyloid protein and the development of early-onset Alzheimer's. But we don't know what it is about beta-amyloid that actually causes the symptoms of dementia, and there's only a small correlation between the mutations and genetic variations we know about and the more common late-onset form of the disease we also don't know what the connection is between beta-amyloid plaques and tau tangles. And while it seems obvious that tau tangles have the ability to choke and kill neurons, we don't really understand that process either. Here's Dr. Mayu again.
2: Most of us think that the loss of neurons and the loss of synapses are probably what explains most of the symptoms in Alzheimer's disease. What we have not been able to do is to, to show with convincing evidence that it's the accumulation or the overproduction of amyloid that leads to the neuronal loss or the loss of synapses, nor can we show that the tangles explain that, because they are all present at the same time. So we don't know which one event started which. So. It could be that the neuronal loss occurs or the loss of synapses occurs and then the amyloid and tangles occur. Could be that the amyloid appears first and causes everything else. Could even be that the tangles occur first. Here's Dr. Murayama again. These
3: are um, diagnostic criteria. However, there is a lot of debate about um, what their role is in actually causing dementia. This is partly because we don't understand the brain generally as well as we hope we would, uh, and because understanding the physiological consequences uh, of abnormal amyloid, tau, and other protein markers um, is something that's very difficult to do. So what do we do, particularly with millions of people suffering
0: from Alzheimer's every day? Well, we have to do what science has always done, pick a promising hypothesis about these mechanisms, one that has the potential to point to a cure and test the heck out of it.
3: What we need to do is uh, identify the best hypotheses that we have uh, and act on those hypotheses. That's how science has always worked. Um, We can't wait until we get the definitive answer for anything. For many years now, the hypothesis that has been considered the most
0: promising and has garnered the most attention, the most experiments, the most funding, the most press, is one called the amyloid cascade hypothesis. Simply put, it builds on what we know about the genetics of early onset Alzheimer's and says that in all types of the disease, amyloid comes first. The amyloid system malfunctions, and this causes the buildup of amyloid plaques. These plaques then cause a not-yet-understood cascade of other mechanisms in the brain, known as the black box. These factors cause the formation of tau tangles, which correspond to the death of neurons, accounting for the memory problems and other cognitive symptoms that we call dementia. Here's Dr. Rudolph Tanzi, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and director of the Genetics and Aging Research Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital.
4: In the, in the field of Alzheimer's disease, probably the most exciting work in the modern era took place in the 80s when uh, a laboratory led by George Glenner at University of California, San Diego, um, looked at Alzheimer's disease as, as he called it, the most common amyloidosis in man. And um, he suggested back then in 1984 that amyloid, beta amyloid is driving all of the rest of Alzheimer's disease. And um, this idea, which became known as the amyloid hypothesis, was, you know, re-coined and re-termed later on uh, by folks like uh, John Hardy and Jerry Higgins as the amyloid cascade hypothesis, in which case they said, well, the amyloid accumulates, and then there's these many different events, um, inflammation and, and um, microglial cell activation, oxidative stress, free radical damage. In other words, lots of things go wrong. After the amyloid accumulates in the brain, and then neurons start to die, and then the signature of the dying neuron is the tangle, and that's the second major uh, pathological hallmark of Alzheimer's: the tangle. Um, and then, for you know, for decades there were arguments, debates: what matters more, the amyloid or the tangles? Which one is causing which, or are they totally occurring in parallel? And so these these debates went on and on, and. When um, in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, we and others found the first Alzheimer's genes, uh, we saw that four different genes had one thing in common besides increasing risk or causing Alzheimer's. They increased the accumulation of the beta amyloid in the brain. So in the 90s, we and many others proposed that, yes, it's beta amyloid accumulation that causes this disease, but you still had this ongoing raging debate does the amyloid really cause the tangles or not?
0: Dr. Tanzi's lab has recently published Too Much Fanfare, a study that he feels puts this debate to rest. It seems to prove that a problem in the production of amyloid is the root cause of Alzheimer's disease, while also simplifying the dominant hypothesis by removing the need for an intermediary cascade.
4: So the, the model is a uh, human stem cell derived human neurons the trick was to grow them in a three-dimensional matrix in gel to mimic the milieu of the brain to introduce the alzheimer's mutations that cause amyloid and make neurons from those stem cells and sure enough you get amyloid you get plaques in about six weeks and if you just wait two or three more weeks you see the tangles and the big breakthrough was if you stop the plaques from forming by blocking the amyloid from being produced you will not only not see the plaques, you don't see the tangles. So this is the first proof of concept that amyloid leads to the tangles, just like George Glenner said back in the 80s, and that if you stop the amyloid, you stop the tangles.
0: Not surprisingly, when Dr. Tanzi and his group released their findings just this past fall, it was big news in the field and beyond.
4: So the paper, the Alzheimer's in a Dish, as it's being called, was published in Nature, and um, it was a, I was overwhelmed and surprised by the media attention it got from you know, from a mention on the front page of New York Times and a large article in The Times. And you know, um, I, Time magazine called it you know, one of the greatest medical medical momentum breakthrough uh, for the year. And it was covered all, all over the place.
0: The reason it was so exciting is because it points directly to a cure for Alzheimer's disease or, more accurately, perhaps to a vaccine. If the factor that causes Alzheimer's is an excess buildup of amyloid plaque, a drug that prevents that buildup should prevent the
4: disease. So then the question becomes, well, if we stop the amyloid, will we really stop the disease? You know, there's that debate. Well, in the last two months, I think, thanks heavily to our Nature paper, we've settled that debate, yes. If you stop the amyloid, you stop the tangles.
0: There are many people in the field, though, who are not so certain that this new data is a slam-dunk proof of the amyloid hypothesis. Here's Dr. Scott Small, Professor of Neurology at Columbia and Director of the Taub Institute for Research on Alzheimer's Disease and the Aging Brain.
5: Well, you, you know, there's a there's a really good uh, philosopher of science named Thomas Kuhn, and he described how science progresses. Uh, and it progresses in this punctuated this equilibrium. You have a hypothesis that takes a long time to get formed, it then gels, and then the hypothesis in good science, is there's an attempt to try to prove or disprove it. In theory, in, you can only disprove a hypothesis. And But once it's gelled, it's very difficult to topple. And that's correct. That's the way it should be. Now, the amyloid hypothesis is the dominant Kuhnian hypothesis of the day. It's been that way for 20 years. It deserves to be that way. But I think most scientists who take a dispassionate view would say that it's starting to um, show some cracks <laughs> and there are a lot of reasons why it's showing cracks now just because it's it's chinks
0: are showing doesn't mean it's wrong but it may, it means it might be wrong those chinks in the armor of the amyloid hypothesis can be listed in four major categories let's look at each one at a time the first has to do with the way memories are stored in the brain Which, it turns out, requires the same steps your computer uses to store information. So,
5: in your laptop or desktop, if you want to create a new memory, you need to open up a new document. You write information. uh, That's on your screen. That's your short-term memory. If you now turn off your computer, it's erased forever. If you want to move that information from your short-term memory to your long-term memory, you need to perform an operation on that information, and visually it's a click-save. You Open up the save icon and you click on that, and that immediately shifts that information from your short-term drive to your long-term
0: drive. The brain has a special structure for performing that click-save function. It's called the hippocampus, named after the Greek word for seahorse, because it kind of looks like one. Its job is to turn sensory information into long-term memories. Not surprisingly, it seems to be the part of the brain that first becomes sick when someone is struggling with dementia. It is not, however, part of the brain that seems to develop amyloid plaques.
5: We now know that in Alzheimer's disease, amyloid plaques start in the frontal cortex and progress to other areas, yet it's the hippocampus where Alzheimer's shows its greatest dysfunction first and foremost. And in fact, it's in the hippocampus where you have the least amount of amyloid plaques. So that's a mismatch at the sort of fundamental neuroanatomy
0: level. The second issue with the amyloid hypothesis was revealed because of advances in medical imaging which are continually opening up new ways of looking inside a living brain. Until very recently, the only way to actually look inside a diseased brain was to cut it open. So Alzheimer's disease could only be definitively diagnosed by performing an autopsy after the patient had died. If the plaques and tangles are present in the brain, then that person had Alzheimer's. If they aren't, then it was actually something else. Over the years, doctors who specialized in the care of people with dementia got very good at diagnosing the disease based on asking questions and studying the shape and rate of someone's decline. But in the end, it was guesswork, and not 100% correct. This has changed somewhat over the past few decades with the introduction of new and better imaging technologies—MRIs, and especially PET scans, short for Positron Emission Technology. PET scans and new staining techniques allowed doctors to see the buildup of beta amyloid in the brain of a living subject, and some of what they saw was surprising. Here's Dr. Risa Sperling, Director of the Center for Alzheimer's Disease Research and Treatment at Massachusetts General Hospital and Professor of Neurology at Harvard.
6: The first thing that happened when people started doing these PET studies, including our group at the Harvard Aging Brain Study was that we started to notice that about a third of normal older individuals also had evidence of amyloid plaques. And, of course, this has been known at autopsy for many years as well, and this has been one of the controversies about whether amyloid is or is not a cause of Alzheimer's disease, because how can it be that a normal person can walk around with a head full of amyloid and not have the symptoms of Alzheimer's dementia?
0: This might be at least partially explained, because some studies have shown that in people who do eventually develop Alzheimer's, amyloid can build up for many years in their brains before they start showing any symptoms. And so maybe we're just speaking too soon, that these people who have amyloid buildup will eventually develop Alzheimer's.
6: Over time, we now have seen through studies of these rare autosomal dominant forms, that there's amyloid plaque buildup 20 years before the age of onset in these individuals who have a 100% likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease if they have these rare autosomal dominant genes. And similarly, in studies of older cohorts from the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative and our work at the Harvard Aging Brain Study, shows that these individuals who are still normal but have evidence of amyloid plaque buildup on the PET scan also shows some very subtle other changes in their brain. Unfortunately, they're more likely to have brain shrinkage in key memory parts of the brain, in the hippocampus and parts of the parietal cortex. They have abnormal function in their brain that we can see with functional MRI. And perhaps most importantly, even though they're still normal, they don't perform as well as older people who don't have amyloid in their brain.
0: Another piece of this puzzle might have to do with inflammation, which can kill neurons too and is part of the body's natural defense system against infections. It's possible that amyloid and tau are triggering the microglial cells, which are the brain's natural security guards, and which, it turns out, are not as sophisticated in their defensive techniques as they might be. Here's Dr. Tanzi again.
4: The brain's immune system is very primitive. It's based on, you know, not much higher than that of a horseshoe crab or an oyster. You know, if there's lots of cell death, microglial cells assume an infection and start shooting out uh, cytokines and free radicals, and astrocytes get also ramped up, and uh, the whole system is meant to kill um, pathogens. But if there's no pathogen, and the cell death was actually just due to neurodegeneration, then... Inflammation is just going to cause friendly fire or collateral damage and kill neurons instead. If you look at brains of people who died in their 80s who were perfectly cognitively intact and fine, and sometimes you'll see there, its not often, but sometimes you'll see there, are lots of amyloid, or even lots of amyloid and lots of tangles and where a neuropathologist would say, man, this is Alzheimer's disease. But no, they were fine. They died in their 80s just fine. The common denominator in those brains where they could have plaques and tangles with no dementia is no inflammation. So we know that inflammation is uh, what kicks, you, you know, kind of throws you off the cliff. I, I think of plaques and tangles, you know, 20 years before symptoms even occur, plaques and tangles are amassing in the brain, pushing you up that, that mountain. And inflammation is coming around, you know, also helping to push you up. But in the end, it's rampant inflammation. Uh, in response to all of these dying neurons and the amyloid and all of this debris that's accumulating that then pushes you off the cliff.
0: There's at least one other possible explanation here, too, though, and that's that amyloid might be a biomarker for cell death. In medicine, a biomarker is kind of like a symptom. It's something you can measure and verify that happens alongside a disease, but isn't necessarily part of the actual pathology. A good example might be a fever. When you have the flu, the actual pathology is a viral infection. A fever is a marker that lets you know that a problem might be present, not actually the problem itself. If it turns out that a majority of the cell death in Alzheimer's is actually caused by inflammation, the amyloid plaques and tau tangles might be the cause of that inflammation, or they might be a biomarker for it, and the cause might be somewhere totally separate. Here's Dr. Small.
5: It could be a biomarker, and and that's why it it tracks with the disease. But if it's just a biomarker, then it's just smoke, not the fire, and all these drugs are clearing the smoke and the fire is still raging. So it's, it's not just a semantic debate. It's fundamental to how we're going to cure this terrible
3: disorder.
0: A third and particularly troublesome challenge to the amyloid hypothesis comes from the fact that there have been many trials of drugs aimed at reducing amyloid levels in the brain, and so far, none of them have been particularly effective. Here's Dr. Small again.
5: The other simple fact is we now have had over 100 drug trials that targeted amyloid plaques, and all of them have been failures. If the amyloid hypothesis is right, if the, it's the linear model hypothesis, amyloid tau cell loss. If the amylo, According to that model, that hypothesis, the amyloid hypothesis, you remove plaques, you stop the disease. 100, over 100 studies have failed. Why is that? Now there, there are a lot of legitimate (laughs) reasons. Maybe 80% of those trials were poorly designed trials, but at least a handful were good trials that removed
0: amyloid plaques, yet patients got worse inexorably. And here again, a primary objection to that objection, if you will, is based on the idea that Alzheimer's is a disease that takes a long time to develop and that amyloid plaques need to be forming in someone's brain for years or even decades before they show symptoms of dementia. Here's Dr. Luke Troyan, Vice President of Neuroscience External Affairs for Janssen R&D and Chairman of Johnson & Johnson's Global Fight Against Alzheimer's Disease.
7: This is where uh, the work that went before with ADNI Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, uh, set up by the NIH with uh, uh, several companies and academic centers, actually tried to get at do we fully understand how Alzheimer's develops and evolves over time, again, based on we appear not with our current treatments able to affect this. And from that, we learned, and this is key learning that already at earlier ages, amyloid starts to build up, and now we have the technologies to image that. And from that we learn that, in fact, yes, it's probably decades before we were used to identify somebody with Alzheimer's disease that this pathology is building up. The thinking here is that anti-amyloid drugs
0: might be more effective if they're administered earlier. When people first start showing symptoms, or maybe even before they start showing outward symptoms at all, Here's Dr. Ken Kosick, professor of neuroscience at the University of California, Santa
7: Barbara. There was a major paradigmatic shift in the field, and that shift occurred maybe, oh, three, four years ago when one phase three trial after another failed. Um, This was a real blow to the Alzheimer community and resulted in a change in almost everyone's thinking. The change was instead of treating Alzheimer's disease after it strikes, when there's already a lot of brain damage, when brain cells have died. Why don't we start earlier, before a lot of brain cells have died? Because even if we can remove the amyloid or the tangles at this late stage, you're not no one is resurrecting the brain cells. So it's really hard to treat the disease when it's already advanced
0: are several large-scale drug trials going on right now that are testing this idea. Let's look at a handful of them that are coming at the problem from different angles. The first two that we'll look at are seeing if pre-symptomatic administration of anti-amyloid drugs might be effective in helping people that we know are going to get Alzheimer's disease. Of course, this means people who have one of the genetic markers for that rare, early-onset form of the disease. One of these studies is being held in Colombia, in South America, because they found there an extended family of people who all have one of these genetic variations, and who are particularly well-suited to a study like this. Here's Dr. Kosick again, who was intimately involved in creating this study.
7: 5,000 people who don't even know they're related to each other. They're fifth, sixth cousins, but uh, we know they're all related because they all have the same rare mutation that leads to this early onset dementia.
0: This new thinking about the need to find ways to prevent amyloid buildup as early as possible opened up a new wave of interest in families like this, because we know they're going to get the disease. So we can try a treatment in someone who has not yet developed symptoms and be much more certain that later on if they don't develop Alzheimer's it's because the treatment worked and not for some other reason.
7: Furthermore, we not only know who's going to get it because of the gene test but we know when they're going to get it. They get mild cognitive impairment at age 45 like clockwork. It's also a particularly
0: homogeneous group which is to say its members are similar to each other in a lot of ways. They mostly do similar kinds of work, have a similar education, and eat a similar diet. This serves to smooth out a lot of the background noise that makes large-scale clinical trials so difficult to glean good data from.
7: In all the clinical trials so far, the differences are the drug are so small. How do we know that it's not that the efficacy is not due to some factor for which the trial was not being stratified? That is that Say the people that uh, did better happened to be doing more exercise or were vegetarians. Um, Here because of the relative homogeneity of the population, we know that what we're testing is the variable between the controls and the treated individuals. It has another advantage too is because these people are relatively young. Compl- the additional complications that many dementia patients have, that is, some degree of small vessel disease, some degree of vascular disease, is not present in these individuals. This is pure Alzheimer's disease that we're seeing down there. Pure Alzheimer's disease in its most pristine form.
0: There's another study called diane 2 D-I-A-N-T-U, that's testing similar antibodies in early onset families around the world. Dr. Bateman is one of the principal scientists involved.
1: It's a multi-drug, what we call an adaptive trial, where we are trying to bring in the very best agents to prevent these people from getting their disease and to try to treat their disease as well for those who are already symptomatic. And so the goals there are to, in doing so, is to, one, demonstrate uh, whether and how these drugs can um, slow or stop Alzheimer's disease and try to get approval for these drugs to be used in the population. And two, then, is to understand what the effects these drugs have on the disease at multiple levels. And the purpose there is to gain a much better understanding of how these drugs have their effects, what do they affect, what don't they affect, how much do they affect it by, and to help build the next generation of drugs.
0: Both of these studies, though, are looking at people with early onset Alzheimer's. And as we saw, the mechanisms of that condition and the much, much more prevalent late onset disease are not necessarily the same. And as we also heard, previous drug trials that attempted to treat late onset Alzheimer's by administering drugs that help clear away amyloid plaques fell far short of their goals. Most of these studies, though, were attempting to treat people with full-blown Alzheimer's dementia. A new generation of studies is wondering, like the early onset ones we just looked at, if these kinds of treatments would be more effective if they were applied much earlier. Many studies are now targeting people who have amyloid buildup, but are so far only displaying what's called mild cognitive impairment the very first and most subtle symptoms of Alzheimer's, rather than more advanced cases of the disease. A few studies, though, are trying to go back even further to people who have amyloid buildup in the brain but haven't displayed any cognitive symptoms at all. One of these is called the A4 study, short for Anti-Amyloid Treatment in Asymptomatic Alzheimer's. Dr. Sperling is its principal investigator.
6: So in the A4 study, we are looking for individuals who are age 65 to 85 who get a screening PET scan. And the PET scan can tell us whether or not there's evidence of elevated amyloid buildup in the brain yet or not. And we believe that that puts them, individuals who do have elevated amyloid, at increased risk for memory decline, and they would be eligible to come into the A4 study So it's a very large trial. It'll be about 1,100 individuals across the United States, Canada, and Australia. It's a long study. It's about three and a half years from the time people come in to screen, and then they get the monthly infusions for just over three years, Some of the individuals will get the monoclonal antibody against amyloid and some will get a placebo for three years. If things are uh, looking promising at the end of the study, we hope that everyone will go on to the active antibody and um, hopefully we'll be able to demonstrate that we can slow memory decline if we start early enough with this type of anti-amyloid treatment.
0: The final results of all of these studies are many years off. And many in the research community are both excited and apprehensive to see the results. Excited because they're well-designed and well-run trials of drugs with real potential to help people, but apprehensive that they might be seen too much as a referendum on the amyloid hypothesis, rather than what they are, which is clinical trials of the effectiveness of particular drugs in particular populations. Those who lean towards the thinking that amyloid is the first cause of Alzheimer's pathology, are nervous that a negative or inconclusive result will divert attention away from amyloid, even though any number of factors other than a bad hypothesis can cause a clinical trial to be unsuccessful. Those who are more skeptical of amyloid fear that a vaguely positive result will cause even more resources to be diverted toward testing anti-amyloid therapies, when a more effective treatment might still lie somewhere else completely. There's no denying that there are many examples in the history of medicine of an insight that went against conventional wisdom, allowing for a major breakthrough in treatment.
3: Here's Dr. Maruyama again. I don't want Alzheimer's to fall in that same trap of saying we have a single hypothesis. That hypothesis explains a lot of the data and a lot of the phenomena we see, but we don't have any time, space, energy, or money to test alternative hypotheses because we're really invested in this one. As a field, as an industry, we need to diversify uh, the kinds of approaches that we're taking since we don't know for sure which one is going to work.
0: Here's Dr. Kosick, followed by Dr. Sperling.
7: There's a lot of factors going on here, and um, I think most people would say that if they had their choice, they would rather not have amyloid in their head. Um, And therefore, getting rid of it is probably ultimately going to be one component of a treatment. So, I would say that even if we take the whole range of opinions on this topic, from those that are skeptical about amyloid to those that are almost ideological about it, I think we all have to come together and say that Uh, An anti-amyloid therapy should at the very least be one component of a treatment program.
6: Although I've been working on amyloid for a long time, I really do believe it's only one piece of the puzzle. And again, I'll come back to the analogy of cholesterol. We know that high cholesterol is a serious risk factor for heart disease and stroke, but it's not the only risk factor but reducing cholesterol with statins and other medications is thought to reduce the um heart disease at least the serious outcomes of heart disease in our country by 28%. So even though cholesterol is not the single cause of heart attacks, it can make a very big difference because it's a key factor. And I suspect we will find that with amyloid that it's not the only player. But it's an important one. It may be one of the earliest things that really sets off the process that eventually leads to Alzheimer's disease, dementia.
0: While these debates over the fundamental physiology of Alzheimer's continue to rage, though, it's important to remember that there are millions of people struggling with this condition right now. And while there's no cure for Alzheimer's, and no drug that reverses it, there are absolutely treatments and therapies available that can offer help and relief to those people and their families, and a whole community of excellent clinicians working to make those treatments better. So in the next episode, let's begin to answer these questions. You have a family member who's beginning to show signs of a cognitive decline, or maybe you are yourself. What now? How do you get diagnosed and why is that important? And then what? What kinds of therapies are out there right now to help you? Next time on the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was presented by the Academy's Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative and made possible by the generous support of the Dana Foundation. It was produced by your host, David Hoffman. Scientific oversight by Dr. Cynthia Duggan. Special thanks to the experts who appeared in this episode. Dr. Randall Bateman of Washington University, St. Louis. Drs. Richard Mayhew and Scott Small of Columbia University. Dr. Tetsuyuki Maruyama of Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Drs. Rudolph Tanzi and Risa Sperling of Harvard University, Dr. Luke Troyan of Johnson & Johnson, and Dr. Ken Cossack of the University of California, San Diego. For information about the New York Academy of Sciences' Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative, including upcoming events, publications, and challenge grants, please visit www.nyas.org slash whatwedo slash Alzheimer's.